Hey, we thank, we thank our worship team. You know, so many past parts of that song came directly from Scripture. And this morning's prayer, as we get started, I'd like to take directly from Scripture in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19. For me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And all the church can say, Amen. Can you take your seats? This is back to school season, and whether you're excited about that or you're anxious about that, it is here and it's upon us. And one of the assignments we would have would be to say what I did this summer. And some of the reports might be, you know, I, I went to camp or I was in a tournament. I was in a soccer tournament, a baseball tournament, or I spent the summer at the family's, you know, beach house in the Hamptons on Long Island. This summer, we have spent a journey going through the book of Ephesians. Actually started in April, and we've continued through to this point. And Paul has taken us on this journey. We're at the point now where he's kind of wrapping everything up. And in Ephesians 6, verse 10, he said, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, I want to take a chance a time to remember who... Paul is talking to. As we've taken this journey through Ephesians, in verse 1, when he starts out, who is he saying to? I mean, Paul, he introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus and those who are fearful in Christ Jesus. So this book, the entire book, is to Christians and to believers. And we have to understand that because if I say, be strong in the Lord and to the power of his might, to someone who doesn't know our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they have no way and no means of doing that. But for those who don't believe and don't know our Lord, we do have a verse, Acts 16, the 30 and 31. For them, when he said, when they asked, well, what must I do to be saved? The disciples said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. And then I can bring you to the passage we just say, once you're saved, now I can say, be bold in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, as we look back at what we studied in Ephesians this summer, the first three chapters, Paul gave an introduction of what this whole salvation, this relation of Jesus Christ was about. He was setting the stage with the Ephesians and said, you know, you have been saved, and this is how you came to be saved, and these are the people that you're a part of now that you're saved, because the message of Christ goes out to everyone, you know, Jew and Gentile. To us, that means all nations and all sorts of people who don't look anything like us. They speak a different language. But chapters 1 to 3 say you're all one in the body of Christ because you didn't earn your salvation because of where you were born or how good you were or anything like that. It was a gift of God, grace through faith, lest anyone should boast. And then the second part... 4 through 6, where we've been the last couple of weeks and we're going to wrap up, he says, if you look at Ephesians 4, verse 1, he puts a little bridge in there. He says, therefore, because of all these things in 1, 1 through 3, you were saved by grace through faith. As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Because you're saved, now chapters 4 through 6, this is what we do because we are saved. It's not 4 through 6, do these things to be saved, chapters 1 through 3. It's the gospel, God's salvation, his gift, through faith, 
And now, this is how we live, chapters 4 through 6. So as we set that, that's what's our journey this summer. Let's jump in Ephesians chapter 6 and read verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the devil in the evil day, and having done so, to stand firm. The schemes of the devil. Put on the armor so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Back in January, we had a brother come and speak through the schemes of the devil. He used a sports analogy, understanding the devil's playbook. And he kind of worked through the playbook. If you understand the plays that the other team is going to play, you can play in the game and you can beat them because you understand their plays. He took us through the um, story of Adam and Eve and the fall. And the playbook at that time is deception. So he deceived them to say, question what God had taught them, question what they believed, until he got to the point they're doubting God, they're disobeying God, and then they're blaming God. The woman who you gave me, gave me to eat. He's blaming God, right? So they're hiding from God, oh, because I was naked. Okay, hiding from God, accusing God, until they come to the point where the relationship with God is broken. So that was the devil's playbook that we reviewed in the book of Genesis. The playbook I'd like to know now, Satan gets us in a position that we don't even know who our enemy is. We think our enemy is flesh and blood. Y'all know what I'm talking about. We got blacks and browns saying, oh, the white people is the problem. When the white people say, hey, I have black friends. I have no issue with that. We have people lined up by nationality, by ethnic heritage, by rich and poor, by political views, conservative, liberal, anything and everything we can do to hate on our fellow man. But our fellow man is not the problem. The devil has convinced us to waste all of our energy fighting with our fellow man. When you look at your fellow man, who do you see? Oh, I find some way to define this person somehow that they're different from me so I can justify not caring or even my outright aggressive behavior against that person. Regardless of what it is, we make us and we make them. How does Christ see us all? Made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. You, me, all of them. Made in the image of God. Living along the same lifetime. Somebody's in their life is either B.C. before they met Christ or they're A.D. after they make the decision. But all sinners caught up in the same problem, in the same situation, and needing the experience of meeting the Savior for his gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We need to start seeing people as Jesus sees people. He loves them. He died for them. They are us. We're all made in the image of God, sinful from the root because of our our ancestry from Adam, in need of a Savior, and the only hope we have is Jesus Christ. But Satan has us fooled. He makes us spend all our energy fighting with these other people. There was 
in the 1990s. It was a science fiction TV series that ran for seven years. And the antagonist, you know, came into the galaxy and realized that there were these powers, there was these, these alliances, these federations, these empires that were very strong running things in that portion of the galaxy. They had treaties, weak treaties between them, but what this antagonist would do is say, hey, if I stir up something between this one and this, they already don't like each other. They just have these treaties that keep some kind of uncertain peace. And he would stir up the powers to bring all their military might to fight against each other. So they're consuming their resources. They're losing ships. They're getting weaker and weaker in this battle for no reason. They didn't have anything against the other. It was just historical, but they had a treaty. But then the plan of the antagonist is once they're all weak in themselves, the dominion just comes in and mops up everything. That's the devil's scheme. We are so busy fighting against other humans and other people thinking they are the problem that we miss out on the spiritual battle that's taking place, and we're busy fighting, exhausting ourselves to the point that we, you know, we're just looking for some entertainment at the end of the day because these people are just, just frustrating me, and I just want to check out. And when you check out, you're not able to do anything in the spiritual battle. And the devil have us fooled because we don't know where the battle is. We don't know where the line is. We don't know where the battle lines are. And we're just wasting our time thinking that other people are the problem. We expose his schemes. It also says you should put on the armor so that you can stand against the evil one. What is standing? You know, there's a song we sang. It's a battle. I want to get in the battle. I want to run. I want to fight. I want to shoot. I want to be in a plane. I want to do something. All right? Oh, he says stand. Because in this spiritual battle, Jesus already won. That's the part the devil doesn't want you to understand. He wants you to confuse and get still stuff. You've got to do in the battle. You've got to work harder. You've got to do these things. You've got to try harder. What is it? Jesus already won the battle. When all of our sins were nailed to the cross, all of our sins, all of mankind, not just the people who have already accepted Christ, everyone's sins, past, present, and future, he died, he rose again, showing he had power over death and hell, and rose, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. The battle is done. We still have these skirmishes, but again, if we don't know who the enemy is, it's like, what are we doing? We're wasting time. We're wasting energy. And we have no idea what we're, what we're doing. We're to stand a defensive position protecting what's already been won. So as a believer, what's already been won is me, my soul, my family, my community, those around me. I'm to stand. Now what about all the others who haven't what about the other flesh and blood? If we want to put it in military terms, that's an extraction mission. They are prisoners of war caught behind enemy lines. They are not our enemy. They are our objective. It's an extraction mission to go seek out the souls of the lost and bring them, just as we are, flesh and blood, who recognize the need for a Savior and accepted that Savior. It's an extraction mission. Can we continue? I'd like to continue in verses 14 through 17. We'll get to the armor. Now that we know Satan's scheme is to get us off of where the battle is is even taking place, now we can put out our armor because we know where we're going and what we're supposed to be doing. Stand, therefore, 
having fastened the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. All circumstances take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's start with the belt of truth. What is truth? As you look through your social media, there's a whole lot of versions of the truth. Everybody's got something to say in the truth, about the truth. Now, I don't know how many friends you have, but the number of versions of the truth you get is probably equal to or greater than the number of the social media friends you have. Everybody's got a version of the truth. We tell people when you come into court, put your hand on the Bible and tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. If people were telling the truth, we wouldn't be in court. We wouldn't need a judge and 12 jurors to tell us what the truth was. Because people would just tell you the truth. Because we all have this version of the truth which we slant our story and we weave it so that we look like the hero, either the hero or the victim, whatever the story is we're trying to portray, but we had no fault of our own. child comes in from the backyard saying, Daddy, sibling kicked me. I said, what do you mean sibling kicked you? He said, well, you know, this, this, is what, this is the time. This is what the parents are for. There's something going on. I need to get engaged. One is, one is, a, is, is kicking the other. I said, oh, tell me more about this. What was what's going on? Because I'm a man of science. I know about cause and effect, right? People just randomly kick you for, for no reason. But <laughs> spinning the truth, I'm not going to tell you what I was doing before they kicked me. So, okay, well, what was happening? So I was just walking through the yard, and I, you know, walked walk past the swing, and, and they kicked me. I said, walk past the swing, and you kick me. Okay, tell me more. Did, he, did they kick you with one foot? With the left foot or the right foot? Now give me some more information. Um, both feet. I said, all right, I'm raised as a little ninja. How did they possibly kick you with both feet? I said, well, they were swinging on a swing, and I, and I walked by, and, and they didn't stop, and they just kicked me. Okay, um, man of science, um, there's this physics principle that they can't stop in midair. Of course, the kid didn't understand that, but I had to say it. I mean, I just had to, to get that out, but... And their version of the truth, somebody had done something to them and they needed justice. But I said, well, let's go back outside and play. Are you hurt? No? Okay, go back outside and play. And just be careful around people swinging on the swing. You know, we spin the story always to our advantage. But the truth, the belt of truth, is God's truth. We're talking about God's truth. We're not talking about anybody else's truth because we're always changing truth, making up the truth. People talk about, I got to speak my truth. I don't want to hear your truth. I want God's truth, and that's the only truth I want to hear. And what's the importance of the belt? If y'all have been to the mall, um, you've seen these young men who, who, who need a belt. And I say the mall because I know you don't have those people in your family. So you would see the mall and say, well, I need, need a belt. And the belt holds us together, holds everything together. If we think of ancient times, the times that Paul was writing to people, they wouldn't have long pants to cover their legs, protect them from the sun and the environment, but they would have long robes. And if you're needed to do something, if we think of Philip, when he had to chase after the Ethiopian eunuch, the Bible tells us he had to pull up and tuck, tuck it in, so he had to have a belt. The belt keeps you kind of held together. And it's the truth that keeps us held together 
The next item on the list was the breastplate of righteousness. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul reminds us that's God's righteousness, not our righteousness. All we got is wrongness. But he gives us his righteousness and is a breastplate. It protects what we've got inside right in here and what's in here. We've got our heart, which we definitely need, and we've got our lungs. Very important. You know, we have coming up, the Paralympics is coming up, and people have very many different abilities. And they're able to compete with whatever their, their different ability is. Some, you know, some don't have vision, missing limbs. But I guarantee you, without a doubt, they all have heart and lungs. You must have heart and lungs, and in the battle, you must protect your heart and lungs. The, the breastplate of God's righteousness that protects us. And the, the breastplate from him. Nothing that we have done to earn it. So that from the time you came to acceptance in the Lord and you made that decision for Christ, you not only have the belt of truth, you also have the breastplate of righteousness, and you also have the gospel. I said your feet ready with the readiness of the gospel. Because remember we said our job is to stand, is to hold our ground. You think of the palace guard in England. They're standing all day, their entire shift. The tomb of the unknown soldier, they're on their feet. The shoes are very important to the soldier. For us, the gospel is what's most important so that we can stand. We stand on that firm foundation of the gospel. But it says the gospel of peace. You mean the gospel of peace? How's it peace? Because the devil has us fooled. We have people who are talking about, you know, God is going to get mad at what you did and strike you with lightning. You know, they think God is karma. No, karma is karma. God is God. He's a God of peace. There is no war. There's no battle between God and man. I'm going to say that again. There is no war. There's no battle between God and man. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sent his son to take our sin die for us, and rise again, and sit at his right hand, interceding for us. Christ was the bridge between all of our sinfulness and God's righteousness. God wants us to call him Father. He wants to call us his children. There's no battle between God and man. We've got to get that into our head. The gospel is a gospel of peace. We take that message is that Jesus loves you. He died for you. He wants to be at peace with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. We take that gospel of peace to those who are lost, prisoners behind the enemy lines. The shield of faith. The previous items, you know, you, you had them. You had them from the time you were saved. The gospel, the righteousness, and the truth. By grace, we're saved through faith. But many of us leave our faith there being saved. And then we go through the rest of our life without much faith. And how much? All you need is a grain of mustard seed. That's what the scripture says. Faith the size of a mustard seed. But sometimes we go through without that amount of faith. But we need that faith to extinguish what? It says the fiery darts of the devil. What does that mean, fiery darts? If you think of battle... Think of a soldier standing his ground. And the enemy starts shooting fiery darts. Without protection, what happens? 
Some may miss, and maybe the ground around him gets fire, but those who hit, they don't kill him, but they set his clothes on fire. So now what is a soldier doing when he's clothes on fire? Stop, drop, and roll, right? That's what they taught him. Stop, drop, and roll. Now, is he ready for battle? Is he defending his position if he's stopped, dropping, and rolling, trying to get his clothes out of fire? The fiery darts of the devil will get you off your task. He starts, he sends these fiery darts into your life to get you worried, to get you off task, to get you taken track, to get you looking over here, all over the place, except focus on what it is you're supposed to be doing. But the shield, the shield of faith, helps us to extinguish those fiery darts. We have the faith that says, Lord, all this stuff is happening. I know all this stuff is going crazy, but my faith is in you. In the 23rd Psalm, think of the 23rd Psalm, we say, the Lord is my shepherd. When we get to verse 4, say, I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I think that would be pretty distracting. If I see bodies, skeletons, whatever around there. But I'm trusting you, your, your, your staff, your rod and your staff, they protect me. We have faith in Christ. That's our shield. So when those hard times come... We know the one in whom we have our faith, and we don't get distracted. We don't get off task by the devil's fiery darts coming at us. That's our shield, our shield of faith. So we have to use our faith all throughout our lives, not just the faith of giving us salvation, that faith being the power over the penalty of sin at the end of days, but it gives us power over sin, the power of, over, gives us power over the power of sin all through our days. When we have faith in Christ and we can avoid all the things the devil's going to throw at us all through our days. So use that shield, of, shield so you can resist the fiery darts of the devil. The next stop is the helmet of salvation. The helmet. We know what's in our head is our brain. Of course, we've got to protect our brain. But what's more important than protecting the physical brain is protecting our thoughts. That's where a seed of a question takes root and grows, becomes doubt, becomes anxiety. And then you you can't sleep because you're worried about this thing. You wake up in the morning, you're tired because you didn't sleep, and you're still worried about it. You can't eat, or you eat too much, or you eat the wrong things. You can't focus at work. It's, it's daydreaming. It's because I'm focused on this thing that's giving me anxiety. And as this goes on, continuing to can't sleep, not eating right, your body doesn't know what I, why I'm fighting or flighting, but it starts sending the fight-or-flight chemicals into your system. And you're all messed up physically, because of what's happening in your head. The thoughts that started in your head are meant to mess you up physically. And they start to have actual physical consequence in your body. So that's the first. So you want to replace those thoughts, what is it, with salvation. Well, replace those thoughts, well, how does salvation help? Well, what's the most, the biggest problem that we've had as mankind? It's the sin and the separation from God. God already took care of that. So if he took care of my biggest problem, is he going to take care of my other problems, my other situations he's going to get me through, the valley of the shadow of death? 
Because we know we have salvation, we use that as a helmet to protect our thoughts, change our thoughts, to say, oh Lord, I know you love me to the point that you sacrificed your only son for me, so for this problem I'm going through, I'm going to trust you with this problem and turn it over to you. Because you've taken care of my biggest problem. The scripture says that look at the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, and even Solomon didn't look as good as any of those. They don't work. They don't have these stresses of paying bills, and you take care of them. So why am I stressed that I'm not be able to take care of this bill? If I lose my, lose my job, I'm not going to find another one. If he took care of your biggest problem, salvation, can we trust him to take care of our other problems? Keep that helmet on and keep your thoughts in check. Don't get those thoughts of anxiety and, and, and everything else that start to mess you up and get you off task and get you sick. Another thing is, we're accountable for our thoughts. I like to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. It just gives us an example. You know, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whosoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother and will be liable for judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. He's holding us accountable for our thoughts beyond our actions because our actions start as thoughts. It's our thoughts first, and we don't protect those thoughts. Those thoughts can grow into bitterness, to anger. In this case, it grows into hatred unto, unto that you just wish somebody was out of your life. All right? You haven't actually murdered them, but those are the kind of thoughts that you're having. And God convicts you of that. Because that person that you're hating on is what? Made in his image. They're no better or no worse than you. They just may be at a different point on the continuum, whether it's after the decision or before Christ. They're not your enemy. But we find all sorts of ways to think that that person did something and that person is my enemy. Put on that helmet. Protect your thoughts. Now, most of those items we've talked about are defensive. Now we're going to get to the good part, right? The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Because you want to get into the fight. Let's look at Hebrews 4, 19, what it says about our sword. Hebrews 4, 19, 4, 12, sorry, 4, 12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the vision of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Piercing soul and spirit. So this is a weapon that works in the spirit realm. Remember we said we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and all these unseen. So this is a weapon that now works in the unseen world. But how do we use it? How do we use this weapon, this sword, we just start swinging around at everybody? No. We use it like Jesus uses it. I, I'll be using Jesus as an example. If you find a better example for me than Jesus, you come up and tell me about it. Now, when Jesus went for 40 days to fast and pray, to draw closer to the Lord, there's people who do that nowadays. They will do 40 hours. It's kind of a recognition that Jesus did 40 days. They'll do a weekend, 40 hours to fast and pray and go closer to the Lord, to meditate, to read, to pray, to think. 
and, and, and see where the Lord leads them in their life. But even in 40 hours, you get hungry. But if you've determined to fast and pray, you don't eat because you said, this is the sacrifice that I'm making. So it wasn't the fact that Satan came and said, hey, turn these stones into bread. It was the timing. First of all, it was the timing because this was the time that Christ decided to fast and pray. So you're not going to eat. So even though he had the power to turn stones into bread, this was not the time or the place. One thing you notice about the devil, he doesn't actually do anything. He just tries to talk you into doing stuff. So that's the limit of his power. So don't ever say, oh, the devil made me do it. No, you did it. He may have talked you into doing it. But even in this case, Satan didn't come to Jesus with bread and say, hey, have something to eat. He could only talk it up. If you go back to um, Genesis with the fall of man, he did not cut up the apple, give it to them, put it in their mouth, or anything. He just lies and lies and lies some more. And then he lies a little bit more after that, and he finished lying. And he gets us to do the work that we shouldn't be doing. So he tells Jesus, take these stones, turn them into bread. So what does Jesus say? Well, this is the time that I've appointed to fast and pray. The man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So he uses the scripture. And the Satan says, oh, I, I can do that too. You know, come on up here. Throw yourself down because you like saying this, right, Jesus? So I'm going to say it too. It is written that he will lift you up on evil eagle's wings that you should not dash your foot against a stone. So Satan said, hey, you can do that. I can, I can talk that way too. And what does Jesus say? He responds, it is written not to put the Lord your God to the test. Because this is what Satan does. He'll pull random scriptures and he'll have this conversation trying to convince you of what you're not supposed to be doing. But it sounds right because sometimes he does use parts of the scripture. And then he gets to the final test. He says, hey, Jesus, hey, you know, look out, see all these kingdoms of the world and I'll give them to you if you'll bow down and worship me. And it took me a while to kind of understand this. I'm like, so what? It's the world. It's like, don't we sing songs that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills? And the... But then I realized this was the greatest land grab in history. See, now, while I was in New York, they told us in history class that for $24 worth of jewelry and other tradable items, the settlers bought the island of Manhattan from the Native Americans, $24. A little closer to home here, we doubled the size of the United States with the Louisiana Purchase. Pennies, of, pennies per acre. Pennies per acre. That was a great land grab. Planet Earth to Satan for the price of nothing. Because he taught Adam and Eve, who had dominion over the earth, into eating the fruit. And if you don't believe me, what was Adam and Eve's job? They named the animals. Who names your kids? You, because they're your kids. I named my car. I named my house. They're mine. I can give them a name. Adam and Eve named the animals because they had dominion of the earth. They were the ones ruling the earth on God's behalf. That's what they were given. But they gave all that away during the fall. So Satan is often in a trade back. He said, I know your daddy made all this. 
and I know I hoodwink those, 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 the, the kids, all right? But you can have it back if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, as we know, it is written, you shall worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall you serve. And so Satan left him and departed for a little while, and the angels came and ministered to Christ. That's how you use the sword of the word, because the battle is in spiritual places. Don't go using it on human beings that when they're having a trial in their life, like Job's friends say, oh, well, you must have screwed up something because I'm reading here in the Bible, and this is probably what your problem is. That is not what the sword of the word is to be used for. It's the gospel of peace to rescue the prisoners of war behind enemy lines. It's the sword of the word against these evil principalities and high places. All right? The workers for Satan. Satan's got his one-third of the fallen angels, and they're running, running amok, running things, influencing people. That's who you use the sword of the word against. Now, we have prayer. Prayer is another weapon that is important for us to use. And how often do we pray sometimes like the Bible tells us to pray? Jesus told his disciples, he taught them, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But we often pray, we make our own list of what we want, my kingdom come, and then we ask the Lord to bless it. At the end, we say in Jesus' name, amen. We've grown up in a fast food world where we expect everything to come to us just like that. You know, we expect fast food. No, Amazon was delivering in two days, but that wasn't enough. So they build a warehouse in your, in your region, you might get the stuff the same day. Now, the only thing I think we need same day is when you're out working on your car and you got half the car spread out on the driveway and you realize you need a tool or a part. Okay, now I need same day delivery because I'm not going anywhere, right? But for all the other things, we've been conditioned to think we need everything now. I need it now. I need it now. Jesus... It's not your genie. Your name ain't Aladdin, okay? And it was just respect. I'm a prey, and I get to get my result. And I've got proof for this. Look at Daniel chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. So I set the scene. Daniel had visions. This was his gift. And he had a vision that caused him a lot of angst. So he was praying for an answer to it, okay? And the answer didn't come right away. So, hey. It took 21 days for an angel to finally come to deliver the answer to Daniel. And when he arrived, this is what he said. He said, fear not, Daniel. From the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard. It better be the case. God hears us the very first moment we pray. Okay, make no doubt about that. Okay, if anyone has a doubt about that, let's clear that up right now. God hears you the very first moment you pray. And this angel said, I've come because of your words. I've come to bring you an answer. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the king of Persia. Now, I told you that Satan has dominion of the earth after the fall of man. He's got his cronies all over the place. So the prince of Persia... One of the demons, fallen angels. So people say, hey, do you believe there's spirit activity in the world? The answer is yes. 
Okay, the Bible tells you, yes. Okay, that's the truth of the word. They're not our friends, though. Okay? The angel was coming from heaven with a heavenly message to give it to Daniel. And the demon that Satan has guarding Persia, where Daniel was, they say, you're not coming, you've come and you're not coming any further. So for 21 days, there's a spiritual battle going on, which we're unaware of, except that when the angel finally arrived, he tells us. So when we see things happening in the world, we don't know why these things are going on because we're looking at the symptoms. We don't always see behind the scenes in the spirit world where things are going on. But that's where our prayers hit. That's why we continue and we must pray. And so in that story, Michael finally came, took care of business, and then the angel was able to continue his trip and come and talk to Daniel. But there are battles, literal battles, going on in the spiritual realm. But we get twisted around and think we're fighting at flesh and blood, and that's not our enemy. That's the devil's scheme, is to get you off the game, not knowing where the battlefront is. Continuing, verses 20, 21. So I skipped a few verses because those were our, well, those were our opening prayer. Um, just to say that, you know, Let's pray the scripture. You know, there's many songs inspired by the scripture. And we can pray the scripture. We can use the word that's written. And use it as a defense against, as Jesus did. And we can use it as our prayers as well. So we'll pick up here now in verse 21. So that you may know how I am and what I've been doing. Tychias, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that may, he may encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I was a little boy growing up in New York City, if someone would come to visit the church, they would have a letter. And the letter would say, I've heard this so many times, I can say it from memory. To our dear brothers and sisters gathered in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in either New York or United States, depending on if the person was traveling internationally just from another state, but it was the same letter. We'd like to introduce you to our dear brother Christian, his wife, sister Christian, and their children, the three little Christians who are traveling to your region. They have been in happy fellowship with our assembly for however long, you know, maybe even a generation, and we ask that you accept them in the love of Christ as they visit your area. Yours because of Christ and then signed by the elders of the assembly. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, hey, this guy is coming. He's a minister. He's a co-laborer of Christ. But you notice in those letters, they don't talk about what school anybody went to, what job they were in, how great the little Christians are in their sports or in the spelling bee or anything like that. But do we introduce each other like that? Do we introduce each other with our godly qualifications? So this person is a humble servant of the Lord. This person is valuable in the service of the Lord. Or do we follow the world standard, you know, and talk about, oh, their power, what position they have, their influence, you know, oh, their, their money, something prestigious about the person. That's what we want to focus on. But Paul here introduces this dear brother how he is as a Christian, so because Paul knows he's not going to be able to deliver the letter, 
But when they see this person coming, he wants them to accept him and accept the message that he's brought from Paul. And you know, Paul can identify a Christian. Paul knows what a Christian looks like. What was Paul's first job? You know what was Paul's first job? Finding, hunting down, imprisoning, arresting, and killing Christians. That was his first job. If we go back and look at the stoning of Stephen, Paul is there and say, hey, I'll hold your jacket, take a stone. I'll hold your jacket, take a stone. The Christian's right over there. That was what he did. So Paul knew how to identify a Christian. But this ties in to the message through flesh and blood, prisoners of war behind enemy lines. Because what happened to Paul? He's the same Paul. He has the same skill in writing letters and convincing arguments. I mean, he had to go into different districts, convince the governors, to say, hey, let me come in and find the Christians and get rid of this problem. Very convincing arguments. He's very good at writing. All these skills that he used are still in place. But he, after the spiritual battle, he came down under a new headship. His flesh and blood was not destroyed. He was not identified as an enemy. He was identified as someone stuck behind enemy lines and needed to be extracted. And that's how we need to see the unbelievers, because they are not our enemies. We wrestle against flesh and blood. Some of these folks I have found, because I do get on the Internet, see their testimonies of people who have come out of addiction or lifestyles, and these people make the best ambassadors back to the people in that lifestyle or in that addiction. Because they can say, look, I was once lost and heavy laden with that burden I couldn't carry. But let me tell you about my Jesus, okay? He made a way for me when there was no way. Because he rose up from an empty grave. And there's no sinner that he can't save. And the people say, yeah, we know. Because you were the worst. All the parties were at your house. You knew where to get the drugs. You say, yeah. There ain't no sinner he can't save. So let me tell you about Jesus. And he can do for you what he did for me. These people make great ambassadors back to people who are still stuck in the addictions and the lifestyle because the unbeliever is a prisoner of a war caught behind enemy lines. So when we put on our full armor of God and we've got to understand the schemes of the devil, we've got to properly identify the battle. Understand who our enemy is. Understand who the prisoners of the war are. Understand the strategies. Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood. As Paul tells us earlier in the book, we were the same way. He spent some time saying, such as you, you once were. Okay? But no better or worse, just because we put on a suit and come to church. It's like, no, there was a point in our life that we woke up, somebody told us about Jesus, and we made a decision to say, oh, I'm going to accept this gift of salvation. By grace, I'm saved through faith. And that's what they need. That's our mission. That's your mission. So when you put on the armor of God, stand against the schemes of the devil, but also go to rescue the captives caught behind enemy lines. Let us pray. Our Father God, we come before you, and we just thank you for this time together, Lord. Your, your word has gone out, and at some time, your word touched all of our hearts by your grace. 
we were saved. And let us understand that's what the world needs. The world needs the gospel of peace. There is no more battle between God and man. That battle is over. But now it's just a matter of redeeming, finding, extracting the captives. Help us understand our part in that battle and what it is you'd have us to do and make us willing because we have the full armor of God that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. Amen.